schools, restaurants, professional sports, you name it, they're all shut down. This should come as no surprise. The coronavirus outbreak continues to spread throughout the nation. And as of March 26th, there have been over 83,000 cases and over 1,200 deaths. Today, I'm joined by a fellow classmate, Will Hudson. And don't worry, we're practicing social distancing. We're FaceTiming one another, so he's at his house while I'm at mine. But before we start off, I wanted to give a short disclaimer of just our intentions for this episode. Will and I do have our political beliefs, but we both believe that this pandemic is bigger than politics. Our intentions today aren't to convince you about your own political beliefs, because that could be saved for another day. But what we want to do is help ensure that you also realize the severity of what's going on. Well, do you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, I think it's important to be above politics at this moment. Um, Anything that's being suggested by people on TV, the mainstream media, we're all just trying to stop the curve. The politicization of this is, is not healthy, but we just want to stop this curve and save lives and save people from getting infected. Well, I think that's enough for the disclaimer. It's Friday, March 27th. And you're listening to Operation Status Quo. I wanted to start off our discussion at a time before this entire pandemic came to be, specifically in 2018. There has been a lot of misunderstanding about what actually happened regarding the global pandemic team. But let's just make it clear. The Trump administration eliminated the senior director and the corresponding directorate for the Office of Global Health Security and Biodefense. And the office still exists, but the body that controls it is the directorate for the weapons of mass destruction and biodefense. Now, contrary to what some people may say, this still has negative implications. There was even a report from November 2019, just a few months ago, by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and it warned about the negative consequences of the president's decision. And why? Well, because there are too many agencies and entities involved that a leader has to account for when responding to a pandemic. I'll even quote the report. Here it is. The authorities currently in place at HHS are insufficient to address these critical, complex, and often urgent interagency demands. It also points out that there is an issue regarding the lack of clear leadership roles in the White House. It says this, over the past year, the sluggish White House response to the Ebola outbreak in the DRC is but the latest example of this problem. Will, you've certainly followed the news. Tell me about the job that Vice President Pence has done. Was it right for the president to select him rather than having a senior director? Um, well, certainly, um, I appreciate the everyday press conferences that we've been seeing and he's had a lot of the experts up there yeah but certainly it makes us all uncomfortable to see him up there when he's not a doctor and he has no real experience in this realm um i i really like how dr fauci comes up i think he's been a main leader he's been above all the politics yeah um but uh, going back to Mike Pence, mm-hmm. sometimes he'll get up there and he'll start praising um, President Trump for um, some things that weren't exactly his doing at all. Like he'll say that President Trump's getting all these tests and that he's 
working and he's been working to like contain this and the whole time he's been saying it's a pandemic that's actually false because the whole time he's had president trump has had a much different actual opinion of what's going on in february he was talking about how you know it's it could be even a hoax in one of his rallies he said that um he's been downplaying it and it's been really disastrous for everybody so um i think a doctor would have done a better job but so far, hopefully, we can get the curve under control under what he's doing. And if we're talking about the shortage of personal protective equipment, in the words of Illinois' governor, it's a wild west out there. Various groups, including the U.S. Conference of Mayors, the National League of Cities, and the International Association of Fire Chiefs have written to the president about not receiving complete orders and the lack of prioritization for first responders. And the president he's had the ability to do something through the Defense Production Act. The DPA, for those who don't know, says that in a national emergency, the federal government can force production of necessary materials. So within the context of the outbreak, this would include personal protective equipment and ventilators. Although an executive order promised to ensure that manufacturing companies would put in greater efforts towards these materials, and although the president has given the HHS the power to determine production and distribution, he isn't actually telling the HHS to do anything. The Trump administration has argued that companies are already working on their own to address the shortage. And obviously, from what we've seen, this isn't the case. And if he ever does end up deciding to direct the HHS, he still wasn't quick enough in doing so. But when we're talking about the decision to eliminate the senior director position and the director overall, maybe it's just not fair to judge the president before he even knew about the pandemic. He definitely does not have a proactive approach, but let's just see what he's done from a reactive standpoint. And then again, we still have to disregard the DPA issue. The following is a video from Fact Check titled Trump's Statements About the Coronavirus. And I'll just play the video from February 27th to March 10th. It's going to disappear one day. It's like Thank a miracle. God. It will disappear. And I've gotten to know these professionals. They're incredible. And everything is under control. I mean, they're very, very cool. They've done it, and uh, they've done it well. Everything's really under control. And we're prepared, and we're doing a great job with it, and it will go away. Just stay calm. So, Will, what do you have to say about the president's rhetoric? Has he demonstrated a proper response? Um, I really think that a lot of his rhetoric, especially recently, he's he's kind of stepped up the severity of it, and he's kind of come to grips with what it actually is. But even last night, uh, the president went on um, Sean Hannity on Fox News um, mm-hmm. in, in a phone interview, and he said that, you know, we n- might not need the 30,000 ventilators that the CDC and everybody is saying that we need, which isn't exactly reassuring that President Trump isn't saying that we need to be completely on top of this. Um, he's not exactly been one to say that this coronavirus is a huge deal and we all need to prepare for it, um, especially when he says that things could reopen by Easter. Easter is a week and a half, two weeks away. There's no way that the curve is going to be flattened by then, and we're still going to see rising cases until then. So his rhetoric has definitely not been sharp enough. And if I were him from the start, I would have gone on and said, this is worse than the flu. You know, the fatality rate, it's 10 times as worse. It's more contagious. We have to do more. And he's not really doing that at this point. And I just wanted to go back to when he said that the virus would go away. 
Yes, the virus will eventually go away, but not after killing thousands of Americans. Let me remind you, the president said that the virus would go away on February 27th, when there were no deaths in the U.S., but also on March 10th, when there were over 500 cases and 19 deaths. 19 Americans died, and still, his rhetoric and communication to the public never changed. And it's not him just saying that the virus will go away. On February 28th, he held a rally, and he referred to the coronavirus as this new hoax developed by the Democrats. The following day, after the first American death, he tried to clarify and claim that he was talking about the Democrats' outlook on his administration's response. But beyond the hoax, there have been other lies that he's put out. He's claimed that a vaccine would be soon developed, and then public health officials had to step in and clarify that the timeline actually extends into next year. When he visited the CDC, he insisted that tests were available to all Americans, but that was also not true. Like you said, he even suggested loosening regulations for various communities by Easter. And this is when you have countries like Italy, Spain, France, and the UK all on lockdown. Here's a video from Guardian News titled, Trump says he hopes to win the coronavirus battle by Easter. Ultimately, the goal is to ease the guidelines and open things up to very large sections of our country as we near the end of our historic battle with the invisible enemy. We're going for a while, but we win. We win. I said earlier today that I hope we can do this by Easter. I think that would be a great thing for our country, and we're all working very hard to make that a reality. We'll be meeting with a lot of people to see if it can be done. Easter is a very special day for many reasons. For me, for a lot of, a lot of our friends, that's a very special day. And what a great timeline this would be. Easter is our timeline. What a great timeline that would be. Will, what do you find to be the dangers of this false hope that the president is providing? Well, I think it sends a message to lots of Americans that they can go outside, they can go um, in public places, and they can be close with maybe older um, relatives that are very vulnerable to this coronavirus. Um, sends a message that everything's going to be fine, when in reality, it will only be fine if we stay away from each other right now and you stay home and do the social distancing. And he's really not, um, he's not providing that message. Lots of people are thinking that they can you know, still act like life is normal when it really isn't, and we have to act like it isn't. And I wanted to clarify that we both understand this is just him talking to the press and that nothing he says is actually set in stone. But his communication to the public is critical. For him, I think it's just a game of how he can distort everything to make it seem as if his administration is doing well and to gain those approval ratings. But that's not what's important. His false hope is misinforming the public, and it allows many citizens and other government officials to justify having a carefree outlook on the outbreak. It's even in our own state. On Monday, March 23rd, when there were nearly 800 cases in Georgia and 25 deaths, Governor Kemp ordered the medically fragile to avoid leaving their homes for two weeks and ordered bars and nightclubs to temporarily discontinue their services. But this is what we've always known. These are the precautions that the CDC has been recommending for weeks. He should be ordering all individuals to stay home, something that the mayor of Atlanta has advocated for. And by no means would this order be considered extraordinary. Indiana's governor 
said that all individuals should stay home when the state had only 259 cases. So it spreads from the president to government officials and eventually to the public. Many Americans don't care about the outbreak unless it personally affects them. Take the masses of spring breakers at Florida beaches, for example. In a video from CBS News titled, Spring Breakers Express Frustration Over Coronavirus Precautions Miami. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. You know, I've been waiting. We've been waiting for Miami spring break for a while. About two months we've had this trip planned. Two, three months. So we're just out here having a good time. Whatever happens, happens. Like it's really messing up with my spring break. What is there to do here other than go to the bars or the beach and they're closing all of it? It's really messing up. I think they're blowing it way out of proportion. I think it's doing way too much. Doing us bad. We need a refund. This virus ain't that serious. It's, serious. it's more serious things out there like hunger and poverty, and we need to address that. Will, isn't this just completely disappointing? 100%. I mean, they were talking to, um, I'm not sure which news outlet, but they got a hold of a spring breaker that said that it's okay. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to be fine. I'm just going to keep on partying. And that's just a really selfish outlook. Um, and it goes to one of the dangers of this virus where um, lots of young people don't get critically ill from it. So they feel like they're, um, they're basically invincible. Yeah. Um, when in reality, they can be a carrier and they can have mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. And they can spread it to their parents, their grandparents, or older people that have weakened immune systems or people with underlying health conditions. So there's a lot of dangers that people don't see. They just hear the part that says that they're probably going to be fine. And they act like, you know, I can just go party and do what I normally do, which is really dangerous at this point. And governors, um, the president, need to start telling people that you can't do that. And they need to start having a national lockdown that needs to happen. That should have happened weeks ago. The fact that we're still not there is really saddening at this point. And not to get carried away or anything with what we're saying, but my argument has long been that there's this inequality in the public health sphere where developing countries rely on developed nations for assistance. So if the U.S. isn't personally affected by an outbreak, then developing countries have a much harder time receiving the resources that they need. But this is one of the rare times where I've seen that the elderly and those with underlying health conditions they're relying on individuals within their own communities to care for their survival. And these spring breakers have completely disregarded it. And we've definitely had the opportunities to make the right decision. If we compare the U.S. and South Korea, both countries started having cases around the same time. February 29th, though, was an extremely terrible day for South Korea, with 909 reported cases. However, over time, less and less South Koreans were becoming infected. And on March 22nd, only 64 cases were reported. Throughout the entire pandemic for the country, their daily death toll has always been eight or less. So let's just investigate what we could have done. Rather than allowing spring breakers to flood the beaches and sending inaccurate messages to the public, what should have we done as a country? Following the first case, the South Korean government helped develop tests and established immediate regulations for public congregation. There were also new facilities established to conduct the tests so that traditional settings like hospitals wouldn't have too many services to keep track of. As of March 24th, 1 in 170 South Koreans were tested, while only 1 in 1,090 Americans were tested. Effective contact tracing strategies included phone notifications regarding nearby new cases. And the media and public infrastructure were constantly modified to promote necessary precautions like social distancing. 
And all of these efforts actually led to the citizens cooperating. Although some of these strategies aren't directly transferable to the U.S., well, shouldn't we have considered taking some of them? Absolutely. Um, I think that one of the biggest things that we have to do now is to look at countries that have already gone through that curve. Yeah. And of course, China, um, the numbers, we don't know if they're accurate. I mean, likely they're reported. There are cases that are going on still but aren't being reported. Um, But South Korea, we have a good indication that they have successfully dealt with this problem and flattened the curve. And so if you see a video or videos of people in South Korea walking around, they all have masks. Whereas, you know, we've been told that, oh, you know, you might not need a mask. It might not work. When in reality, we just have mask shortages and we weren't ready for it. See, they were ready for it. They had testing. I know President Trump says that we have um, more We've tested more people than anybody, but we also have more infected people. And, you know, we have more people in general. So, you know, proportionally, South Korea obviously tested more people because they're a smaller country. So um, we definitely need to look at the dynamics um, and do, you know, enact social distancing, masks in public, uh, whatever we can do that they did. I, I completely agree with you. We've largely been unprepared. But one common misconception is that face masks actually help prevent transmission for healthy individuals. Just wanted to point that out, but getting back on topic, as of now we've surpassed Italy, which has long been considered the hardest hit country, where hundreds of people are dying daily. In just one day, there were nearly 700 deaths. But it's also important to recognize that there have been many videos and announcements from Italy's healthcare officials warning the US to take the outbreak seriously. The circumstances have become so severe in Italy that testing has been limited to those in the most affected locations and who have the most severe symptoms. I wanted to shift our discussion to a more personal topic for the both of us. Recently, a faculty member at our school passed away, who we call Coach Hill. And before we go into further detail, here's a video from 11 Alive titled The Beloved Mount Vernon Coach Among COVID-19 Victims. Those closest to Ron Hill say he was a staple at the Mount Vernon School. The 63-year-old coach and teacher made a difference on the field and in the classroom. There is not a person that has come into contact with Ron that would have anything negative to say about him, ever. Um, He was the kind of person that if you needed him, he was there. Nikki Williams-Rucker is Hill's family friend and former colleague at the school. She says her family is heartbroken over his death, and so is Hill's daughter, Kendria Hill, who says she misses him badly. Daddy is a fun-loving no-nonsense kind of man. Kindria says her father went to the hospital for pneumonia in both lungs, but his condition got worse after testing positive for COVID-19. With his other underlying health issues, it was just, um, it was just hard to deal with, hard to process that, you know, this virus is real. It hit close to home. Well, you can talk more about this too, but Coach Hill was a bright light within our community. Every school morning for the past two years or so, my sisters and I would talk with him and laugh because he made everyone around him happier. He was just an overall positive person. Do you have anything that you would like to say? Yeah, um, it's just been so sad for us um, the past couple of days as a community. Um, I know I just went on um, a trip with him um, before spring break. Just three weeks ago, I was talking with him talking about um, college basketball, the 
Virginia basketball games mm-hmm. as we were both, you know, huge fans of them. Um, and it's sad because I just saw him. Um, and, yeah. you know, less than three weeks later, he's passed away. And um, it's so incredibly sad. And, uh, you know, he served our country honorably. He's, mm-hmm. He was a bright light, as you said. Um, and there wasn't anybody that didn't want to be around him. He yeah. always brought out the best in people. And um, I think he'd want us to talk about how serious this is and how yeah. we all need to take this seriously so we can save as many people as we can. Um, it is really sad. Um, mm-hmm. So, And my main issue here is that these are preventable deaths. As the death toll increases, the country has lost so many figures like Coach Hill. But our president continues to give us false hope. It's not about his approval ratings or politics. It's about saving lives. For any real president, each American death in this pandemic will be a burden because it's their responsibility to care for the public. But for President Trump, there isn't any burden. These are life stories that we've lost. But to the president, these are just numbers. And it's caused many of us to become accustomed to the rising number of deaths and cases. I don't want to get carried away or anything, but the moment the first case appeared in the U.S., he should have acted immediately and with the platform being safe over sorry. He should have informed us about necessary precautions and the genuine severity of the outbreak. He should have called on state governors to prioritize the lives of the people over the temporary state of the economy. I honestly don't care if we have a president who is Republican or Democrat but not a person like Trump. Give us a president who actually cares more than themselves and who could have acted with urgency when the country, especially people like Coach Hill, needed it most. Anything to add, Will, from your part? Um, I agree. Um, President Trump um, and this, you know, people every day look to him for leadership. People want somebody to tell them what's going on, to give them the facts. Um, but also to, you know, re- uh, encourage people, uh, let them know that we can get through this. Yeah. Um, and at this point, um, he's, you know, he's consistently, you know, gone after reporters for questions that, you know, he hasn't like. Um, mm-hmm. As you said, it is about numbers because, you know, when we had a cruise ship in San Francisco, um, he didn't want to. Mm -hmm. lot the people into the u.s get them the care they need because that would add to the overall numbers of the u.s and i hope we can flatten this curve and i hope that he didn't act too late in all of these um, measures and the stimulus package definitely and we'll go over the stimulus package later into the podcast all in all i miss coach hill and i'll always remember him he's a light shining above us we'll be right back So you've heard me talk about certain things, and you may be wondering, who am I? Well, to say the least, I'm Akilah Merchant. I'm a high school junior from Atlanta, and this is just a way for me to dissect certain issues that I'm passionate about, that I want to talk about with other students, with outside experts, and even you. I think that there are a lot of issues that certain groups and populations aren't well aware of, but what I want to do is expose them to those problems. But most especially, I want high school students to care more 
and realize that even if they might be young, and even if a problem may not directly be affecting them, they have the voices and the means to address certain issues. But enough about me right now, let's get back to today's episode. I'm back here with Will, and now I want to focus on the social issue aspect of the pandemic. After all, this is a social issue for many Americans, but it also highlights the problems that low-income families have long had to face. The outbreak has particularly affected small businesses and those whose jobs rely on the public, such as retail and hospitality. This is all because people are more hesitant to be active consumers. Some of this I definitely do understand, but there's also racism affecting Chinatowns throughout the U.S. In terms of unemployment, there were record numbers last week, reaching 3.3 million. These affected individuals are often low income. They don't receive any additional benefits from their jobs, such as a partnered healthcare program. What's even worse is that these families often suffer from worse health circumstances. And this creates tremendous disparities in survival. And this is discouraging in the outbreak, considering the dangers of underlying health conditions. However, there was recently a stimulus bill passed by the Senate with a value of $2.2 trillion. Before the bill was passed, four Republicans argued that the unemployment program would motivate individuals to remain unemployed. Some Democrats also thought that there needed to be additional modifications. So while the bill definitely does not address all issues for members of both political parties, it does include a wide variety of benefits. Will, why don't you talk about the main policies and your opinions of them? Um, First, um, checks for families with um, about $1,200 for each adult, uh, $500 for each child. Mm -hmm. Um, Assuming that the individual makes $75,000 or less, or a couple makes $150,000 or less. Okay. Uh, student loans have no penalty till September 20th. Mm-hmm. Um, food banks have about $450 million extra funds. Um, also, tax day, I believe it was postponed to July 15th. Mm-hmm. Um, additional unemployment um, insurance, um, four-month program of an additional $600 per week compensation. Okay. Um, so a lot of people, such as people working in the gig economy, self-employed people, Uber drivers, um, they will actually be included in the unemployment insurance too. So um, the last provision I just talked about, I'm a big fan of because um, a lot of people um, won't be able to get the check immediately because their information isn't in and the government doesn't have their information, um, their social security numbers. Um, Also, I believe if you haven't filed the tax form in 2018 or 2019, then um, you, you're not going to get the check as quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so the unemployment insurance is a huge deal for, you know, Uber mm-hmm. drivers and a lot of people that are going to be out of work now but won't get that check um, until a couple of months from now. So overall, um, those provisions I do like. Um, there were There is some additional um, money that's um, for um, – Corporate bailouts, um, some yep. money is, in particular, I believe you were talking about um, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and how um, there's been a lot of um, fighting between the left that has wanted those bailouts not be included to include more money for the checks. But in the end, it was a compromised position yeah. that had the unemployment insurance and the check. Um so that was a compromise for now. I believe there will be another bill, but this is, I think it's a decent first step. Yeah, definitely. Um, now. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring this up is because I'm a member of the Youth Advisory Board 
for the Making Caring Common project. And MCC's main goal is to prepare students to be leaders for their respective communities. It actually completed a survey that analyzed youth empathetic behavior, showing that we have a lot of progress to make. One of the main messages from some respondents was that your efforts to help others come after caring for yourself. And I think this pandemic, while it's definitely unfortunate, it's an opportunity to help students become more empathetic. Here's a video from the Harvard Graduate School of Education titled, Helping Children Cope with Coronavirus and Uncertainty. And it talks about building this empathy. I think the question of how children have compassion is a, is a great one. And, you know, this is an opportunity for kids to think about other people too. I mean, obviously, you want your child to be safe and you want to be safe. But it's also um, an opportunity for kids to think about people who might be vulnerable and what they can do and active things that kids can do to help people who are vulnerable. And I'm talking about, you know, things like washing your hands, but there may be organizations that crop up that kids can support that are working with the elderly that can be helpful. So I think this is a great time for kids to think about, expand their circle of concern, to think about people who are different from them and not to stigmatize people with this illness either. I mean, this is an illness that is going to afflict people randomly, and kids should understand that as well. Well, when he talks about helping others, students do have the power to influence how the government helps the low income and provides financial assistance. Could you talk more about that? Absolutely. Um, for sure, um, our, although we, you know, younger people can't vote at this time, there's a lot of huge things that we can do. Um, first of all, um, this doesn't really relate economically, but there's a lot of older people in nursing homes right now that aren't getting visits. Yeah. Um, and that's um, very, that can be very sad and they can get very lonely. So just by being a young person, you can write letters, um, contact via Facebook or FaceTime or um, other social media um, with people that really are isolated right now. Um, also, um, in regards to low-income individuals, mm -hmm. um, you can um, encourage um, your parents to donate um, to food banks mm -hmm. um, to help people out. Um, for sure, uh, uh, I think staying connected right now is huge. Uh -huh. uh, calling your congressman and being active on social media is huge as well. Pushing for them to, again, like make these checks um, a recurring thing. $1,200 one time that's not going to last very long at all. For some people living in New York, San Francisco, that cannot even pay rent. Mm -hmm. So we have to make this a recurring thing. Mm -hmm. um, especially um, we've, uh, in Canada, we didn't get into this in the podcast, but uh, Canada has every month for the next four months, uh, every adult gets $2,000 a month. Okay. Um, so again, just looking at um, what we can do, um, contacting local officials and pushing for this to be on a recurring basis because this is not going to be just for a couple of weeks, mm. uh, even if the administration wants us to believe that. And just being an advocate for addressing these issues, even on your own media platforms, it can go a long way. Our age doesn't limit our capabilities. And I truly think that this has proven to be true throughout history. All in all, I hope that everyone out there is taking this seriously and truly reconsiders the type of people we elect to office. We salute you, Coach Hill, and we'll always miss you. I'll see you next time.